when we come together and have an opening with the song and then the explanation that uh, Jason just gave us, you know, you ask yourselves, how can we put into words that are limited, you know, compared to God's glory and honor? So let's go into prayer before the Lord and give him our hearts. Father, you are our God, our only God. You are the one that has created us in your image. And Lord, we have failed. We can go all the way back to Adam and Eve and blame it on them, but each of us has a heart of our own. And at times, Lord, we decide to do things on our own without your, you know, looking to your interference in our lives. When all the time, Lord, you're doing everything that you can for us, for our benefit. And Lord, our our sole response is to give our hearts to you. You're not interested in our sacrifices or our tithes or our works. You want our hearts fully and completely. We ask for forgiveness, Lord, when we fail, when we give up, when we fall down, that you pick us up, dust us off, and send us on our way on the narrow path that leads to righteousness. So we give thanks, Lord, for all your love and your blessing and your guidance. And above all, we give thanks for Jesus Christ, your son, who showed us the way, who gave his life for us, paid the debt that we owe, Lord, that we may stand before you. We look forward to the day when we stand before you for eternity. Lord, where we can freely and joyfully sing praises and give you glory and honor through full full submissive hearts, Lord, even as we shed tears of joy. So we give this day to you, Father, Lord, and ask that you would bless us in our time together through word and fellowship. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated as we read from Luke chapter 1, verses 57 to 79. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father, inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all the neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from old, that we should be saved from our enemies 
and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham, to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness, before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunshine shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. The first uh, Sunday in Advent, we light the rejoice candle. The second Sunday is the delight candle. And then third is sing for joy. And today we light the persevere candle. Luke 2, 29 through 32. Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, light for revelation to the Gentiles, and for glory to your people Israel. bow our head please we thank you father for letting us gather here in the beauty of this place with the lights and the beauty of singing all around us we come in from jobs from military life from schools from family life and we are in a season of preparation and lord we are preparing. We are shopping. We are cooking. We are baking. We are decorating. And we are wrapping. And I'm reminded of how long ago, Lord, that you prepared for us. For years and years you prepared for us. You sent prophets. You sent kings. You sent angels. You sent visions and dreams. And, Lord, it was to prepare your people. We are in a season of joy. We rejoice in having our family members together, gathering from here and there. We hear from friends, those who are nearby and those who are far away. And we hear carols being sung. We love the melodies of those carols and the words. And, Father, we sing to you. Joy to the world, the Lord is come. We pray for those who are sick today or who are unable to attend. And we pray, Father, that you will give us purpose and strength 
to represent you in our workplaces and the places that people gather. We ask for strength among our friends, among our families, and may the babe of Bethlehem show us his will individually and as a congregation from our church body. We dedicate our lives to you, God. Take us and use us to accomplish your purposes and goals. May this Christmas season, in many small and even large ways, build your kingdom in order to honor your son, Jesus Christ. In his name we pray. Amen. Well, good morning, brothers and sisters. It is such a joy to be here with you all this morning. And it is a privilege to stand before you now as your new senior pastor, uh, honored to have been handed down the baton by Dan. And it's my promise to you, to Dan, and to the Lord that I will do my very best to faithfully discharge this office to the glory of God. I also just wanted to give a quick thank you once again to everyone that helped with getting the house ready for us. It looks amazing, and we are blessed by that work that you accomplished. Also, once again, thank you to all those who helped us out on moving day. And also thank you to those that checked in on us during our being snowed in day in Seattle uh, when we first arrived. Uh, for checking in on us during our wild wind storm, which caused our power to go out for 17 hours. Uh, thank you to the Beakers who allowed us into their home for several hours while we waited for that to come back on. Snowstorm, windstorm, 17-hour power outage, all within the first 10 days of us being here. Uh, some say we brought the excitement, and that's how I'm choosing to look at it. Uh, but as a sister said to me last week, an earthquake is all we are missing to complete our experience, so we're just waiting on that one. Maybe within the first 30, we'll see. Uh, but sincerely, thank you for lavishing us with love the way you have. Uh, for those that have supplied to our, needs, to our needs, have served us in various ways, have blessed us with various gifts, from a Christmas tree, Costco membership, books, fixing up some of our dining room chairs, Watching and loving our children have prayed for us along the way, have put plans in place to make all, the, all these things happen, and everything else and anything else that I may be missing on behalf of Sophie and myself. Thank you. With that, I invite you to turn in your copy of God's Word with me to Philippians chapter 4. Philippians chapter 4, and that's page 1166 in your pew Bible. 
And if you're a visitor this morning and you don't own a Bible, we would love for you to feel free to keep that pew Bible as our gift to you. Uh, there are also some welcome notepads near the entrance that you can take. And there's an information card uh, in there that you can fill out. We would love to reach out and follow up with you. Uh, this morning we will be uh, looking at chapter 4. Uh, but we will consider the whole chapter in a two-part message, similar to how I preached uh, the section that I was assigned uh, back when we visited in October. Uh, however, next Sunday is Christmas Day, and I plan on preaching a standalone Christmas message. Uh, I believe there are certain days or times where it is proper for a sermon series to be interrupted along the way for various reasons. And I believe there are also times when it is proper for sermons to have a more of a evangelistic aspect to it than others, and Christmas is one of them. Uh, Christmas also provides a good opportunity for you to invite friends <clears throat> or family uh, who would otherwise not be interested in even considering or entertaining the idea. Uh, but people know that Christmas is about Jesus, and that alone might be compelling enough to bring some to church even if for a single service out of the year. So I encourage you to invite anyone in your life that might match that description, and let us all be prayerful for the souls of those that come next Sunday. And I do hope to see you all here next Sunday, uh, if you're able. And I do want to encourage you to come. I, I must admit that I myself, right, part of me would rather stay home in my PJs and uh, enjoy the electricity while we have it. And and watch my children as they play with their gifts all morning and so on. And I promise you that they would rather do that as well. Uh, but I would encourage you to show up and show your families that Jesus is the reason for the season and that he takes priority in your households. And after all, we are commanded to not forsake the gathering. We are not commanded in the same way to celebrate Christmas Day. But again, please be in prayer that the great physician will perform heart surgeries next Sunday. Heart replacements, that is. That he would grant some hearts of flesh in the place of their hearts of stone. So Philippians chapter 4 in two parts. Part 2 will be covered in the new year. And just a quick thanks to Peter as he unfolded some of chapter 3 for us last week and spoke to us about the doctrine of sanctification, the reality that we are in a process of being made like Christ. And as Paul says about himself in chapter 3, verse 12, so also we have not yet obtained uh, this perfection, which is the completion of the sanctification process, but it will be ours in the future. And so as Christians, we should be experiencing a growth and maturity of those things that are, for example, the fruits of the Spirit and our knowledge of God in the Scriptures. But that is not to say that we are perfect and without sin, right? I mean, John himself says that if anyone says that they are without sin, they are deceiving themselves and the truth is not in them. 1 John chapter 1, verses 8-10. So it is a process, and the Apostle Paul takes the time to encourage the Philippian believers in these truths. 
He wants them to be more like Christ, and he unfolds that throughout the letter in a number of ways. He also calls them to unity. Right? He, he warns them against false teachers. He thanks them for their support. He gives a report about his current situation in Rome as he writes from his time under house arrest. And now he closes out the letter with some final thoughts and encouragements, calling them to stand firm or persevere in the faith. So the title of this morning's message is Stand Firm. So please read along with me as I read chapter 4, beginning in verse 1, where God's inerrant, infallible, and sufficient word which he has spoken to us here through the pen of the Apostle Paul reads, Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Eudea, and I entreat Suntuke to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women, who have labored side by side with me in the gospel, together with Clemens and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything. By prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there is any excellence, if there is anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. I rejoiced in the Lord greatly that now at length you have re revived your concern for me. You were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I'm speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. I know how to be brought low, and I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I have learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. Yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you Philippians yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once again. Not that I seek the gift, but I seek the fruit that increases to your credit. I have received full payment and more. I am well supplied, having received from Epaphroditus the gifts you sent, a fragrant offering, a sacrifice acceptable and pleasing to God. And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. To our God and Father be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet every saint in Christ Jesus. The brothers who are with me greet you. All the saints greet you, especially those of the household, uh, of Caesar's household. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirits. Let's pray.
Father, what a wonderful reminder this morning, Lord, that the earth cannot contain. Yet you created a plan, and Christ willingly came and dwelt among us with the purpose, with the plan to bring about redemption to a people. And Father, we stand before you this morning. We come together to worship you because of that reality, that Christ died for our sins and that we have been given eternal life. We thank you for that reality, Father. We pray, Lord, that our worship this morning would be pleasing to you. We pray now, Father, for the preaching of the word. Would you empower it? Would your spirit be at work in all of us this morning to make us more like Christ? Father, we thank you. We love you. We praise you. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, William Gurnall, in his classic work titled The Christian in Complete Armor, expounds on that armor of God that we as Christians are called to put on as we wage war against the rulers, authorities, cosmic powers, and spiritual forces of evil in this present darkness. If you recall Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18, we are called to put on this whole armor, right? Fastening the belt of truth and putting on the breastplate of righteousness, the shoes of the gospel of peace, taking up the shield of faith and putting on the helmet of salvation while wielding the sword of the Spirit, all with the purpose of standing firm, as Paul writes in verse 13. He says, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. That is the purpose of us Christians putting on this armor of God. That we may persevere. That we would stand firm in this battle and come out on the other side victorious. And in his work on the armor of God, Gurnall gives this insight. He writes, and I quote, The Christian's armor becomes damaged in two ways. The first is by violent assault when you are overcome by temptation to sin. The second is by neglect when you fail to perform those duties which, like oil, keep your armor polished and shining. Close quote. The purpose of the armor of God is to help you to stand firm, and it is my goal this morning as it is Paul's goal, as he closes this letter to the Philippians, to show us examples of what it means to stand firm and show us some of these duties which are like oil for our armor to keep it polished and at peak performance in the midst of combat. So we will see how to cultivate the practice of standing firm, what the fruits of it are, and what motivating factors should be at the forefront of our minds as we do this work. So I have divided this text into four headings, all under the main heading of Stand Firm. So the four headings under Stand Firm are, 
its characteristics, its cultivation, its crop, and its catalyst. This morning, however, we will only have time to examine the first of those four headings. So notice now with me that first heading, its characteristics. Its characteristics. What does it look like to stand firm? In verse 1 is where we see this imperative sentence, to stand firm. Look with me. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. Right? This isn't a suggestion. This is an issued command. Christian, you are to stand firm in the faith. And here we see five characteristics that embody a persevering Christian, one who stands firm. Number one, striving for unity, striving for unity. A Christian who is standing firm strives for unity. This one is shown in the negative form in our text. And by that, I mean that Paul addresses it after giving the command to stand firm by pointing out some that are doing the opposite. Verse 2, I entreat Eudea and I entreat Sintuke to agree in the Lord. We'll stop right there. Now, we don't know why these sisters were at odds with one another, uh, but obviously it was an issue that was well known throughout the church. Had it been a small personal matter, I, I don't think that the Apostle Paul would have Number one, taking the time to address it himself. And number two, call them out publicly in his letter like this. And back in chapter two, he had already written out his request for the, for the Philippians to be unified. If you remember in chapter two, he says in verse two, complete my joy by being of the same mind, having the same love, being in full accord and of one mind. But apparently in the apostle's mind, that wasn't enough. Right? The apostle now calls them out by name. And so these sisters weren't standing firm. They were instead sliding on that slippery slope that is disunity. And Paul even enlists others to help bring this conflict to a close. Verse 3. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers. Now, you may notice some footnotes in your Bibles, and different versions read this a little differently regarding who Paul is asking to help bring restoration between these two sisters. The ESV says true companion. The King James says true yoke fellow. And you may have some footnotes that say that the Greek word there may actually just refer to someone by name. <clears throat> it says that the Greek word there um, is speaking of someone by the name of Zyzygus or Zuzuge in the Greek. Now the interesting thing here is that some commentaries will actually say that Paul is actually calling upon his own wife to help in dealing with this conflict. And they say that because a form of that Greek word is part of the word that is commonly used in Greek for yoked together. And that's why the King James reads yoke fellow. But we know from other parts of Scripture that Paul was not married 
And the timeline of Paul's missionary journeys don't really allow for a good explanation as to how he may have possibly had married and somehow his wife ended up in Philippi. So that is highly unlikely. Uh, But just to help you read this section a little more clearly, I'll tell you that I believe that the true companion might actually be referring to Epaphroditus himself. It was believed that Epaphroditus was one of the elders of the church at Philippi. Uh, He is the one carrying this letter. Paul already referred to him in chapter 2, verse 25, as my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and minister to my need. So it would make sense that if Epaphroditus is carrying this letter and is the pastor that will be reading this letter out loud to the church at Philippi, I think you can see how that might make sense then when Paul is speaking to others in the third uh, person in verse 2 and then jumps to the second uh, second person personal pronouns uh, in verse 3, referring to whoever is reading this letter out loud when he says, yes, I ask you. And by the way, just as a quick side note, I think we see some exegetical evidence uh, that Epaphroditus was a pastor just by doing a quick word study of his name. Epaphroditus is a Hebrew name that literally means charming, lovely, or fascinating. So he was obviously a pastor. (laughs) But it makes sense for Paul to ask an elder of the church and other fellow laborers to help bring that unity back to the church by bringing this conflict to a resolution between these two sisters. Because there is a risk and a danger if you are not standing firm. And not standing firm through disunity is a major opportunity that Satan loves to jump in on. And so a characteristic of standing firm is striving for unity. Number two, rejoicing. Rejoicing. The Christian who is standing firm rejoices. Verse four, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And this is a major theme of the letter, isn't it? Rejoice. That's not to say that we perfectly rejoice all the time, right? We should because we have every reason to always be rejoicing, right? I mean, even though our hardest of trials, even through our toughest of circumstances, there is enough truth for us to cling to to help us rejoice. The sovereignty of our God. What a comforting doctrine that, can, that we can rejoice in. He is the sovereign king who does what he pleases. And the best part of that is that he isn't just sovereign. He is good. He is love. He is all-knowing. And so everything he does flows from those attributes. And everything he does is perfect and righteous. Everything he ordains to come to pass is in line with his nature, good and perfect. And so we can rejoice in that truth. 
And as Christians, we can always rejoice in any situation because we are saved as well. Right? We are saved from the wrath that is to come. Our debt has been paid and no matter what comes our way, we will be victorious because Christ was victorious. And we belong to Him. We can rejoice in every circumstance. But friends, if you have not been born again, what comfort do you have? John 3.36 says, Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. You must turn from your sins. Trust in Christ and follow Him if you are to partake of these glorious truths. It is a free gift. And I or any Christian here would love to tell you about it. Please come and speak to someone about what it means to be saved if your soul is troubled in that regard. Trust in Christ and follow Him if you are to partake of these glorious truths. Now, to rejoice means to be glad, to delight in, to make joyful. And joy is a fruit of the Spirit, Galatians 5.22. And so the Christian who stands firm rejoices and should be rejoicing always. Number three, a Christian who is standing firm is characterized by gentleness. A Christian who is standing firm is characterized by gentleness. Verse 5, let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Stop right there. Now, I don't really like this translation of the word into reasonableness by the ESV. Uh, the King James trans translates it, let your moderation be known unto all men. The New King James and the NIV translate it, let your gentleness be known to all men. And the NASB says, let your gentle spirit be known to all people. And I think any of those are more accurate, or at least bring more clarity to the intended meaning of the Apostles' writing. The Greek word there literally means gentle, mild, forbearing. And the ESV translators translate that same Greek word as gentle in Titus 3. But for some reason, reasonable uh, they translate it as reasonableness here. But gentleness is what Paul is getting at. And I think that Paul expands on it a little further in Titus chapter 3 as he charges his readers there unto good works. And so go ahead and turn there with me. Titus chapter 3. And it's page 1185 in your pew Bible. 1185. Titus chapter 3. We read in verse 1, remind them, speaking of the believers in Crete, to be submissive to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good work, to speak evil of no one, to avoid quarreling, to be gentle, and to show perfect courtesy towards all people. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others, and hating 
one another. And then look at the reasons he gives us. The same that should ignite our rejoicing. Verse 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. And so gentleness is a characteristic of a Christian who is standing firm. Number four, trusting. Trusting. You can turn back to Philippians chapter four. A Christian who stands firm is one who trusts God. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. An excess of anxiety might be evidence of a lack of trust. Now, let me be clear here. There are certainly cases where there are medical or mental health related reasons for anxiety Christians. <clears throat> so let me be clear, I'm not speaking about those. And I leave this completely between you and the Lord. I think it's pretty easy for us to discern, especially after the fact, when our anxieties have gotten the best of us when they should not have. And the root of them were a lack of trust that God is good, that God is for us, that he is in control, and that he works all things for good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. Matthew chapter 6, verses 25 through 34 read, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet... Your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you can be anxious and add a single hour to the span of his life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothed the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, Will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. Did you catch the OU of little faith part? Anxiety can be an evidence of a lack of trust. But the Christian who is standing firm is one who trusts in God. And lastly, the fifth characteristic that we see in our text this morning is yet another fruit of the Spirit. And I hope you're noticing that pattern. And it is peace. 
The Christian who stands firm is one who has peace. Or as Paul puts it here, contentment. Look at verse 10 and 11. I rejoice in the Lord greatly that now at length you have revived your concern for me. Uh, you were indeed concerned for me, but you had no opportunity. Not that I am speaking of being in need, for I have learned in whatever situation I am to be content. To be content is to be at peace with your circumstances, to be trusting in God. And I hope you can see how these characteristics are in a sense like links in the same chain, parts of a whole necessary for each other. But they are individually like oil that polishes different parts of that armor of God that you are to put on. And when one part is not properly maintained, as Gurnall said, quote, the Christian's armor becomes damaged by neglect. And when in battle, a damaged armor can be like a torn parachute when jumping off a plane. Dangerous and lethal. So much more that can be said and much more that will be said next year when we pick back up and come to a close in our time of Philippians. But in closing, let me reiterate something really quick. The Apostle Paul writes this in the context of sanctification. We are not perfect. We are in the process of progressive sanctification, right? It is a process. And so we may fail at some of these characteristics daily. And the fact that we do so is not a necessary indicator that you are a Christian who does not stand firm. So don't hear these characteristics and me telling you that they are characteristics of a Christian who stands firm and then be discouraged when you find that you struggle with these and think that you don't stand firm, therefore. None of us stand firm in all of these ways all of the time, but the Scripture gives us a great encouragement to stand firm even in our weakness. Hebrews 12, the author of Hebrews is exhorting believers to not grow weary, and he writes, in verse 3, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. And then verses 12 through 14, continuing in Hebrews 12, therefore lift your drooping hands and strengthen your weakened knees and make straight paths for your feet so that what is lame may not be put out of joint but rather be healed. Strive for peace with everyone and for the holiness without which no one will see the Lord. These characteristics are things that we as Christians should be striving for. But also, thanks be to God that He sustains those who belong to Him so I close with Isaiah 41, verses 9 and 10. You are my servant. I have chosen you and not cast you off. Fear not, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. 
I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Beloved, if you struggle to stand firm in any of these areas, consider him. Consider Christ. Think much of him. Trust in his goodness and do so by remembering the love with which he displayed for you by stepping in your place before the judge as your substitute and willingly took your punishment so that you might live. Be encouraged because he overcame and you will overcome. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you uphold and sustain us. Father, that though we may fail in many areas and sometimes even run to our sin, Lord, you are faithful and just to forgive us when we confess our sins to you. We thank you that you help us in this process of sanctification, though it hurts sometimes. Lord, would we be a people that love your discipline, though it may be hard, but that we accept it knowing that you do so because we are your children and you love us and because it is good for us and it conforms us to the image of Christ. Father, would you do whatever you must in every one of our lives to do just that, to make us more like Christ. For your glory, for our good, and for the good of our community. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, stand as we